You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Here are some highlights from this week's program. I think especially in today's world where we want people to be culturally competent, the way you get to be culturally competent is you understand how the whole world works. There's a wonderful phrase called cultural humility, where you just go in with an awareness of how little you know, and that makes you receptive and vulnerable and responsive and curious with no assumption that you know best or that your way is best. And it's a skill that children can learn. Everything is embarrassing when you're a kid, everything. And it's hard to kind of admit that you have problems, but if this adult that you respect admits it, hopefully it'll be easier for them. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 154, Lessons on Learning, airing for the first time on Sunday, August 24th, 2014. How do we learn? Each of us answers this question differently. Margie Burns-Knight and Anne Sibley O'Brien offer important insights about compassion through their book, Talking Walls, which gives kids a glimpse into the lives of others. Garrett Temkowitz is using his experience with dyslexia to inform his own style as a high school teacher. Our guests might cause you to think differently about the way lessons are learned. Thank you for joining us. One of my favorite things to do is spend time with children's books. And all my children are older now. They're all older than 13, so I don't have as much of a good excuse to spend time with children's books. I'll find myself sneaking over to my nieces and nephews' houses and picking up books just so I can read them to my nieces and nephews. Um, Today we have uh, a children's book that's newly out in the world, Talking Walls, Discover Your World, by Margie Burns-Knight and also illustrated by Anne Sibley O'Brien. Margie Burns-Knight is a children's book author and career educator. She is also an English teacher and former Peace Corps volunteer. Anne Sibley O'Brien has illustrated over 30 books and written 14. This month, she was honored by the Maine Library Association with the Lifetime Achievement Katahdin Award. Margie and Anne both received the National Education Association's Author Illustrated Human and Civil Rights Award and the Children's Africana Book Award for their book, Africa is Not a Country. They also wrote and illustrated the book we're talking about today, Talking Walls, a book that encourages children to ask questions and be curious about the world around them. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today about this book that you've put together. It's quite wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now, on the cover is the... Vietnam Memorial, and I'm going to read what you've written about this. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial USA. Every day, people leave flowers, boots, candles, and letters at a wall in Washington, D.C. that is 165 giant steps long. Millions of visitors have lingered at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall since it was completed in 1982. 
Some touch the names of loved ones, and others cry as they honor the 58,165 Americans who were killed or went missing while serving their country in the Vietnam War. Maya Lin was a 21-year-old architecture student when she designed the wall. She chose polished black granite because she felt you could gaze into it forever. If the names of all the Vietnamese, Cambodian, and Laotian men, women, and children who died in the war had also been chiseled into the wall, it would be more than 7,000 giant steps long. It's interesting that you're able to... Um, the title of your book is Discover Your World. You're able to pull in more of a worldview when you're talking about something that we often think about as uniquely American. I love that about this book. The key idea that we had from the very beginning was, uh, when Margie first thought of it, was that sense of how the walls connected the world. I don't think that that was particularly conscious uh, cho a conscious choice to do that. I've never noticed what you just <laughs> referred to, but it it was what informed the the it was the underlying concept, the foundation for the book that these things we have in common walls um, are what unite us as people and then we can look at the at our differences um, having built that bridge of what we have in common uh, so I think I think it was kind of instinctive to do that throughout was to uh, tell everyone's story at the time that we were also telling a very particular story yeah and this this wall actually is the inspiration for the book so um, and the reason um, the book is a book is because I heard a man named Doug Rollins read a poem about this wall called The Wall. And believe it or not, the whole book just popped into my head. And I said, we should have a book for children about walls around the world and stories they tell. And the rest is sort of history and a very long story. <laughs> <laughs> but it was because of what had been happening in the world with yes, the different walls. Yes, because the Berlin Wall had come down. Nelson Mandela had been released from prison. The Western Wall is always in the news. And for some reason, I just, well, I, I really actually, it just popped into my head as I was hearing Doug Rollins read this poem about the wall. And um, Doug started Veterans for Peace in Maine. He's a writer. He's a poet. And... Um, he worked with me on how we we're going to write about this wall. I didn't meet him until after the book actually came out, but I talked to him on the phone. And um, one thing he said is, you, you can write about the wall, but please include everyone who died in the war. Americans sometimes forget that the war was also um, devastating to millions of other people. And kids, and not only kids, people who read this book are sort of amazed by the comparison in the number of giant steps. So it's 165 for the loss in America, which is huge, but 7,000 for the all losses. And um, he actually said, you have to come up with a visual image, Margie, you, like a school bus or something that kids understand. So I came up with giant steps. Um, so last week, so we've been um, in the schools a lot with this book recently, this new version of our book. Um, and I was with fifth graders, and one reason I just love this work is kids are so curious, and the, the, we just love to encourage curiosity. We love to encourage questioning, and, and um, it doesn't matter what kind of questioning. I just love when kids ask me new questions. So a fifth grader was, we're doing 
I read it. We talked about myelin. We talked about the granite. We talked about the rain. We talked about the items. And he raised his hand and he said, well, I have a question about your wall. And I thought, okay, that'll be great. You know, I, I love questions. And he said, I need to know, do they wash it? And I thought, wow, no one's ever asked me that. I don't know if they wash the wall. Why are you asking? He goes, I don't know. I think maybe it gets dirty and people should take care of it. So I said, do you think we can find out? And of course we can find out because we can find out everything now. <laughs> so I went and I found on the Washington Post this great article, Washing the Wall to Remember Vietnam Vets. And not only do they wash it, you and I can wash it. Um, volunteers gather every Saturday and Sunday morning in the nice weather and wash the wall. And I will be joining that group in May 30th and I will wash the wall. So I thought, wow, what an incredible question. And we, Annie and I have actually shared this story like seven times you're the eighth or ninth, and not one person knew that we washed this wall because we asked them to raise their hands. We've, we've done workshops with teachers, we've talked to kids, I've worked with college students, and nobody knew that you can go wash the wall. And I actually have called the National Park Service and they answered the phone right on the first ring. It's <laughs> like it, it wasn't dial one. And um, she said to call back and talk to the volunteer and you sign up. And um, the Washington Post article, it's almost hard to read because it's very emotional. So that's one reason we love this work, because we get new questions and we find new answers. So There's something about that that's very biblical, like the yes. washing of yes. mm -hmm. the feet. Yes, yes, yes. So um, they, yes, it is. And they do, it's all volunteers and if, so I've told teachers and kids who can't get to the wall, you can actually go on Google Image and you can see people washing the wall. They, they give you soap and big brushes and they provide the water and it's early, early in the morning before the park opens and everybody just washes the wall and everybody leaves. So I, I thought, I wonder what else I don't know. That's why I love this work. What else don't we know? Now I will find out when I go and I will actually take this new book and put it under the name of the man who died in the war that Doug Rawlings dedicated the inspiration poem to. And I did that previously with the other books and um, Vietnam definitely is part of my life because I was alive, but I had very little experience with it. And I thought, oh, I'll just leave the book, you know, and it's so emotional. I didn't just leave the books. Mm -hmm. And now I understand why people leave things at, the, at that wall. You describe a very different sort of wall um, when you describe Nelson Mandela's prison walls in South Africa. As a young lawyer, Nelson Mandela fought to end South Africa's system of apartheid, which divided people by race. Threatened by his ideas of justice and revolution, the white-ruled government sentenced him to life in prison in 1964. The entire world celebrated when he was finally released in 1990. Mandela and millions of black South Africans cast the first votes of their lives in 1994, and Mandela was elected president. A beloved symbol of reconciliation and unity, he has often said, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. So you went from talking about a wall as a memorial to talking about a wall that contained someone mm -hmm. who was so pivotal to changing a society. Mm -hmm. But there was something very important about that wall. Um, 
my daughter and I was telling you before we came on air, my 13-year-old and I were watching A Long Walk to Freedom, and she was noticing how he had changed over the course of the time that he yes. was in prison. Yeah. So these walls actually did have an impact on him psychologically and how he did change the system of apartheid. Well, it's how he chose to use that time of, of incarceration. And he said that he knew as soon as he was um, locked up and taken or, or um, handcuffed and thrown into the belly of the boat to be carried to Robben Island, which is seven miles off of the coast, that he would have to, that they would try to break his spirit. And the most important thing was that he would not allow that to be hap- to happen to him. And he chose to use the time, of the 17 years he was on Robben Island, uh, as a a time of of um, to be strengthened. There's this wonderful Carlos Castaneda quote: "You can make yourself strong or make yourself miserable. The effort is the same." And so he chose the strength. Oh, but I visited Robben Island in 1998, and you take a tour of the of the prison, and the guides are people who were formerly prisoners there. So it's uh, it's uh, unlike any experience I've ever had. It's so deeply moving. You, you the entire time that you're viewing it, you have tears standing in your eyes. It's just deeply, deeply piercing to be there, and then to see what these men and women chose to do with their time. And one of the things that becomes very clear is that Mandela is not an isolated individual. He was a he was an individual of extraordinary gifts, but the the choice to uh, create community, to teach each other, to create a university, to uh, iron out differences in in um, dialogue and and uh, conflict um, debate that went on for weeks and months, and figuring out how the different the people from different tribal backgrounds could could work together. Like the foundation for the new government was laid in during that time they spent together in prison, and it was really had to do with a vision and a choice. Uh, and that was the point at which Mandela, who had a background in nonviolence from uh, ANC, but then chose um, to, he, he came to believe that, the, uh, that apartheid could not be dismantled with only nonviolence. And that's when he um, became part of the guerrilla arm that attacked um, like munitions, uh, not people, but places where weapons were kept. But in prison, he determined that nonviolence was the going to be the most effective method, and so he embraced it completely. And and everyone else, they they taught it to each other and learned how to use it powerfully. And this is something that you know, Margie, you were talking about Vietnam being part of your time, right. and I was born around the time that Vietnam was still going on, but I don't have really any memory of it. But I remember what was going on with apartheid. Mm-hmm. I remember Nelson Mandela. But I didn't really know what the significance of it was. I didn't really put it together with um, the civil rights uh, things that had gone on in our country not very long before. So I think it's interesting now to be teaching another generation of children for whom this seems like ancient history, but it, it wasn't that long ago. No, right. It wasn't that long ago at all. 
And I think of all the illustrations in our book or the work we've done over 20 years, the Nelson Mandela illustration um, has um, piqued so much curiosity with kids. They really want to know, and, and they and they want to know like the facts. And I think that, that they see children protesting. They want to know why are those kids doing that? Because they're children. And most children that we've shared this book with don't do that. But this is, you can connect this so much with what's going on in the rest of the world today with the Arab Spring and every all the other uh, protests that people are trying to make the world a better place. And kids, when you just give them a little bit of Mandela's story, you know, and I, I sort of make it a little magical because it is. That, so this is, this is basically his story. They put him in jail. And I, I make it very simple why they put him in jail. He wanted everyone in his country to vote, and people were a little suspicious of that. And then he spent a lot of time in jail. Then he was released, and four years later he was elected president. What do you think of that? And they go, whoa. I said, yeah, it's pretty much of a whoa. And it's wonderful to kind of um, disturb those stereotypes in our mind of the kind of people who are in prison and the kind of people who become president. Right. And uh, we right. put that together. And There's a lot of whoa. And they always say, I need to know more. And I said, yeah, well, this book is just to launch your discovery. And we hope that you go and learn lots more about Nelson Mandela. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The most important thing you need to begin a personal evolution is heart. To start your journey, you have to take the first step with your eyes and your heart wide open, open to new experiences and possibilities. Without this openness, your efforts, your path toward growth and positive change will be fraught with obstacles that seem insurmountable. So if you find yourself looking forward to good things to come, open your heart and take a brave step toward the future. If you're interested in evolving your relationship with your money, get in touch with us. I'm here to help at tom at shepherdfinancialmain.com. We'll help you evolve with your money. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com. You've also, um, I think, caused children to understand a little bit about what's actually happening Right now, there's been a lot of press um, about people who are Muslim. And we don't really exactly, I think not all of us really understand the, the issues that have uh, gone on with people who are Muslim quite as well as we now understand in retrospect what went on with civil rights. Mm -hmm. So you have written about the Mecca walls in Egypt and Saudi Arabia. And you talk about how 
Muslims paint the walls of their homes to tell neighbors that they have made a pilgrimage to the city of Mecca, the holiest place in the Islamic world. I think this is a different way of looking at walls. It's a way, it's a communication that occurs between people. So tell me why this was important to you. Well, this is, I, I can illustrate it with this great story. So my husband and I are both teachers, and we are on a Fulbright Teachers Exchange in Manitoba. And I went to Winnipeg to share this book. I went to a sixth grade class in Winnipeg, and I showed the picture of the little girl who's hoping one day to go to Mecca for a Hajj. And all of a sudden, a little girl stood up. Well, I don't know if she stood up. She started talking. And she said, well, I can just tell you that's my story. And she told the whole story. Someday, I hope to go. And she said, to help, do you know Mecca? I'll tell you all about Mecca. So she basically repeated what I had written. She sat down or stopped talking, and the whole class clapped, and the teacher clapped. And I thought, oh, you know, these very nice Canadians. They just clap for everyone. And afterwards, the teacher said, uh, you know, we don't clap every time someone talks in Canada. I said, well, why'd you clap for her? Well, she's a new arrival from Afghanistan, and this is the first time she's ever talked. Because <laughs> it was her story. And I think um, it's not easy to write other people's stories. We have to be very careful how you do it. We are not, we do not follow the faith of Islam. We will never go to Mecca. But I think especially um, in today's world, where we want people to be culturally competent, the way you get to be culturally competent is you understand how the whole world works. And this is like a little primer for that, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? A, a foundation. A foundation. Right? You mentioned about not um, that we're often not really fully aware or understanding what's um, behind actions or you know the 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 meaning of, of stories that we hear and um, we get so much misinformation about uh, people who are different from us. Uh, for this particular story, I read three adult books on Islam in order to correct my own ignorance. I was very aware, as Margie said, when you're telling other people's stories you have to be so, so careful and uh, pay attention and continue to ask questions. And I, because of all the sometimes hysteria, but all the the uh, the stereotypes, the fear that surrounds the, the faith of Islam, I and and the fact that I knew I had so little information about it myself, I knew that of all the walls that I was illustrating, this is the one where I had the the biggest chance of making a really big mistake. Uh, so. I read three full, full-length adult uh, books in order to fill in all the blanks and correct my own misinformation. And then we showed it to a number of people. We did that with all of the, the cultural information, made sure that we checked with people um, whose culture we were representing to, before it went um, to press. And in some cases, <laughs> caught mistakes that, were, that really saved us. Mm, uh, but sure did. It, it, I think that starting with that, there's a wonderful phrase called cultural humility, where you, you just go in uh, with an awareness of how little you know, and that makes you receptive and vulnerable and responsive and curious, but not um, with no assumption that you uh, you know best or that your way is best. 
and um, it's a it's a lovely way. It's a it's a it's a skill that that children can learn, and that's the um, one of the things that talking walls can do is to just uh, give us an access, give children a door, uh, a bridge to walk over. Um, where the, they they can connect. Oh, I'm like this child in this way. Uh, but then it, it also becomes a window to look at difference in in a way that's, um, that's a lot of metaphors. <laughs> Doors, bridges, windows, uh, where children... You get an A plus today in metaphors. <laughs> metaphor. So that um, children can be invited in to, to view difference from on the found, standing on the foundation of what we have in common. In this book, you uh, mention and that part of the reason for your passion was because you were raised bilingual and bicultural in South Korea as the daughter of medical missionaries. So there is, you know, you started your life with yes. this needing to be um, part of something that you, that you need to understand something mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. a way that I think not every American child needs to understand. I also know about you, Margie, that you are the middle in 11 children. So that's not necessarily an American thing or not an American thing, but you certainly have had to understand different personalities and different communication types. And, and this book really does reflect that. It reflects this sort of um, assimilation and kind of uh, a very gentle uh, way of approaching similarities and differences. Mm -hmm. So. Did you have any sense when either one of you were um, starting out your lives um, that you might go into this sort of work? I, mean, I knew. <laughs> we have very different stories. This is Annie. I had um, a dream from the time I was seven years old. Uh, it, it never changed. I told everybody who asked that I wanted to be an artist when I grew up. And I essentially, the, the image in my mind was I wanted to draw pictures for my job. And I really enjoy talking to classes, especially second and third graders, and saying, when I was your age, I had a dream. And guess what? Now my job is drawing pictures and, and writing she stories. has pictures from her. Oh, she wrote stories about she was really jealous she wasn't from a large family. <laughs> we only had four kids, and I wanted like eight or 12. And I, that's what all my stories were about. But she would just name her 10 brothers and sisters. <laughs> and their ages. And their ages. <laughs> Nothing ever happened. For years in these little stories, which she still has, right? Yeah. She brings those sometimes. Sometimes. And she brings the pictures that her mother uh, saved. Saved. Bless my mother. When she was three and six, and I could draw just as well now. <laughs> She uh, she only had four children, so she could save pictures. <laughs> she could save pictures. But the 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 I was very clear about wanting to draw. I didn't in my you know seven eight nine year old mind think I want to grow up and create books that show the beauty of of and glory of human diversity. <laughs> but I was living that experience because I first of all I was a spectacle for being the one who was different, but it was the lens was positive. So I was put up on a pedestal and, and celebrated, um, often responded to almost with awe at, at my difference. So my association with differences was, you know, this is pretty great. It's working well for me. <laughs> and it was kind of, I tell kids it was like a cross between being a princess and a friendly space alien. 
there was that wonder and and amazement just just to see me uh, but it also made me very conscious of my own um, racial and cultural identity and then um, I at the same time I was being welcomed and embraced by people who were not my people people who did not look like me were um, communicating in all kinds of ways that uh, we were family so that was really powerful and all of that was happening unconsciously uh, but was the absolute was absolutely the foundation for what I do today my parents uh, were unusual at that time for missionaries um, just just a few people were thinking that way they didn't want to stay on the mission compound that they had at that time in the 1960s these huge brick mansions on a um, mansions but they in contrast to Korean housing at the time they really seemed palatial three-story brick Victorian houses um, on hills surrounded by uh, walls and and barbed wire and that wasn't their idea of how to work and live side by side with their Korean friends and colleagues so we got into a Korean home by the time I was nine and that changed everything so um, that it, it was very much my parents example that uh, you know we are family we're here to learn uh, we're the ones who who need to watch and and be careful and and notice um, how things are done. So I really followed their lead in, in I mean, I, I learned cultural competence as a seven, eight, nine-year-old uh, by, by my parents' example. And uh, what a wonderful, wonderful education that was. It, you know, it's a, it's a life skill that, that everybody um, benefits from. And then you're, the more that you're exposed to that, the more your ease and comfort of navigating across difference grows. And then you you're a global citizen in your experience. And my story couldn't be any different than Annie's. So we show these funny little pictures that when we do our workshop, and here's Annie in Korea, and here's me in the row with all my siblings, and we looked exactly alike, and we wore <laughs> the same dress, and we had the same haircut. <laughs> right. And the kids, we have to be careful not to spend too much time on those pictures because the kids are sort of overwhelmed that we were actually children once. <laughs> and we think, oh, the teachers did not hire us to talk about our life as six-year-olds. But in my f big family, education was absolutely, regardless of what else was, was going on, education was absolutely crucial. Um, you know, especially my dad, he just really knew that we all had to be well-educated. Uh, my parents were both college, had both had college degrees, which I think was not that common. Um, so, um, you know, and we, when we finished it, the book this time, you know, I chose that Mandela quote about education because um, it's really my life work, and I think education will change the world. Um, it does change the world. It has changed the world. And just coming to Maine and going to college here, um, because of people I met at Bowdoin, so this is a, a little Bowdoin story, but you should know it, Michael Fiore. I don't know if you know Michael. Do you know Dora Mills? Well, he's, she's married to Michael Fiore. So Michael Fiore fell in love with these illustrations and bought them all. He owns all the Talking Walls illustrations. 
Um, can you tell a little bit why he fell in love with your illustrations and <laughs> bought them? Because it's very rare. What he did was very rare. Yeah. He created a traveling exhibit so that schools can borrow them and see the original illustrations, and he's also preserved them. He just he and asked saved Annie. the yeah. saved the finance, finances of an illustrator at that time too. <laughs> um, he felt that they should that they should be publicly shown that that it was that people walking around and just looking at the pictures would learn about the world in a way that was really valuable. At the time, he was the owner of the Downey's Drugstore chain, and I think he kind of had that, that Well, we did a service. mural on his wall. So we've mm -hmm. done 10 community murals in Winthrop instead of me signing books. I wanted to do something else, and he gave us the first wall because I knew him, and I said, Michael, can we use your wall? Do you know how to do a mural, Margie? No, I really don't, but at one point I didn't know how to write a book or ride a bicycle, so trust me. <laughs> and that's why he, when he talked to you. Yeah. So and he literally, he, he purchased, It's most of your illustrations are at home in a... They're all stacked up in my shelves. Right. Yeah. And nobody sees the them except in the book. But he, he just had this vision, this really, really unusual vision. So now the original illustrations have all been preserved in that way. And, and they've gone to so And many we schools. actually wrote thank you to Michael Fiore for purchasing the original illustrations for Talking Walls and Talking Walls the Stories Continue and for preserving them as a collection to be shared. So that's one thing we really want to do with the new edition of this book is to get these illustrations. Um, so I um, took them to Park Avenue School in Auburn, and they were there for about a week and a half. And I went and worked with the, the kids, and Park Avenue has a lot of new Somali arrivals. And we were working on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall. And by then, the fifth grader had already asked me from Winthrop, so I was talking to them about washing the wall. And then a fifth grade boy from that school who's, I, I think he was born in a refugee camp in Kenya, he raised his hand. He goes, well, I have a question. After they wash the wall, do they add the new names for that week? <laughs> because how does he know the war's over? His that war is war. <laughs> that war. His, he thought the wall was for every week after people died in wars. After we washed it, we added new names. And I thought, what an amazing question. What an amazing thinker. Thank you for asking. Let me explain. <laughs> <laughs> Let me and explain. And how long would that wall be? <laughs> and how long would that wall be? So these are 10-year-old boys asking these unbelievable questions. And um, the teachers were like, whoa. I said, I know, but that's why we're in the business. We're in the whoa business. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, of course he should think that. Yeah, he should think that. He has no experience with Vietnam. So he has no experience with time, really. He's 10 but he has experience with war. And he's right. You know, everybody should, you know, if all the Syrians who are dying and all <laughs> right. the... Right, yeah. right. So Sudanese I thought, and... Yeah, so I thought that was... that. That's, I mean, just since this book has been re-released re in February, it has renewed my passion. Um, when Annie won the Katahdin last week, I gave her a present, and I gave it to me too, <laughs> a uh, bumper sticker that says books change lives. So we are now proud owners of that new bumper sticker that I bought at the bookstore in Brunswick, and I'm going to buy more today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that people who are listening will pick up a copy of your book, Talking Walls, Discover Your World, by Margie Burns Knight, illustrated by Anne Sibley O'Brien, and share it 
with their children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, maybe just read it for themselves, because I learned a lot reading this book. We learned a lot making it. <laughs> and um, you both have websites. What yes. would those be? Tell me. Ournames.com, AnnSibleyO'Brien.com, MargieBurnsKnight.com. Well, you're a very effective duo. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working together a long time. Kids think she's my sister. <laughs> well, I... I <laughs> And really? I said, well, then I'd have seven sisters. <laughs> that would be too many. <laughs> Maybe I could trade a few. <laughs> I hope your sisters aren't listening. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> the ones that are listening, I don't want to trade you. <laughs> well, I appreciate you both coming in and talking to us today and, um, and Margie for helping continue the relationship that you and I began when we met since we're both Bowdoin graduates and you were helping me with our daily tread yes. back when we published it for in Hanley's um, memory in, in honor of Safe Passage. And I hope that people, as I said, take the time to learn more about the work that you're doing. And I, I really appreciate that this is the way that you've chosen to um, spend your lives. It's very important. Books do change lives, and I think that that's what's happening in your case. Thank you yes, so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. When was the last time you took a break from what you were doing, from the work that was piled up on your desk, and just looked up? I know that during the course of my days, I often forget to take a moment or two to just breathe, look up at the sky, and dream. Terrible that I have to remind myself to breathe, but when I do, I feel energized because in those moments, I'm able to let go of the daily grind and think more about what I want to accomplish, how I want my business to grow. Sometimes those are the aha moments. If we all took a few moments out each day to stop what we're doing and dream a little about our business futures, not only would we feel a great sense of calm, but we may come to realize that these dreams can, in fact, come true. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. I am very lucky to have teachers in my life. As a doctor, I've had many teachers over time. My mom's a teacher. And today I get to sit across the microphone from a man known as Mr. T to his uh, students at Thorne Academy. This is Garrett Temkowitz, who is a science teacher at Thorne Academy. Garrett was diagnosed with dyslexia in sixth grade, which has informed his work both as a student and a teacher. And in fact, that's, I think, what we're going to talk mostly about today. But we really appreciate your taking the time to come in and be with us. Yeah, of course. It's no problem. So first I need to ask you about this Mr. T thing. Did you actually understand the cultural reference? Because you're pretty young. Oh, yeah. No, I pity the fool who doesn't. So. <laughs> Very good. Well, um, for people who are listening, you, you aren't black and you no. don't have oh, no. fun hair. Zero and, gold jewelry. Yeah, you're pretty much as um, lily white and blonde as they come. So I, find, I think it's kind of interesting and ironic that you get to be the opposite of what you look like. Yeah. But it's also something that's kind of interesting because with this dyslexia, you've always had to 
find your way in the world in a different manner. Is that so? Sure, definitely. And having a last name like Temkowitz with all the consonants and, and vowels, I almost failed kindergarten trying to spell it. But uh, yeah, I think that perhaps everybody makes it their own different kind of way, though. So. Well, tell me about your journey a little bit. You, if you weren't di- diagnosed with dyslexia until you were in sixth grade, then that's a long time to be in school and not know exactly why things weren't falling into place for you. Yeah. Um, I was always a poor reader. I don't know if when you were young you had the reading groups, but I was always in the slow reading group. I was always you know, fretful of when they would call on me to read out loud. But sixth grade is kind of when you go from learning to read to reading to learn and that's really where I was I started to have problems just because they'd give homework assignments that were reading based and I just wouldn't do them I just I just didn't commit so that was really when and I had a bunch of other problems as well when I was younger speech impediments and a couple of other things but yeah the sixth grade was when I really started to struggle because I wasn't learning because it was all book based so so when you look at a page, um, what do you see that's so different? I guess there's really no way for you to compare, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's hard to describe. I see what I see on every page, I guess. Um, the big issue that I have is I will mix words, so if I have a word like friends and fiends, something like that, I might read fiends as friends or vice versa. Um, and spoonerisms are difficult as well, so... If, if two words make sense swapped, I will swap them in my head. Um, and that was probably the biggest issue. And it just takes me longer to, to compute. I mean, if, if Katie can read a book in you know, five hours, it'll take me a week. So it, it's a real commitment. And you're talking about Katie Kelleher, who's the managing editor for Maine Magazine. Um, she was actually on our show um, not too long ago talking about the 50 people list for Maine Magazine. It is interesting that you ended up with somebody who really goes towards words. Right. You know, this is her thing as words. Yeah. And your thing with words has got to be a very different relationship. It is. It's part of the, you know, part of how why I admire her as much as I do. It's her ability to express herself in written word. And that's just something that's always been out of my reach. So I, I like how much she reads. You know, it's encouraging how much she reads. And she's never bugged me about you know, how long it takes me to finish a book. So if she's willing to wait two months to talk about a book, I think that that's fine. You teach 11th and 12th grade students, which means that you yourself not only had to complete high school, complete college, but had to have the ability to communicate with other, you know, people who are relying on you for information and had to use books in order to do a lot of this stuff. That's that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, it was it was difficult, especially in middle school and high school, but once I got to college and professors starting to put their lectures online, I could just go through the PowerPoint two or three times and that would that would definitely get me past. Any questions that I had I could ask other students or the professor. I really did avoid reading in my education for a really, really long time just because it was hard. And I don't get a lot of information from what I read, so I can't pick up facts or something like that. But once I got to college, it was okay. And after college, a lot of my learning has been done on YouTube. So like Khan Academy and other YouTube things. If I'm having a physics problem that I can't figure out, I'll look 
online, and it's not a lot of reading. It's almost a reference book. So that's kind of how I got by and where I am today. And what subjects do you teach? Um, this year I taught astronomy and physics and biology, and then next year I'm just teaching biology and physics. So your mind really kind of relates more to the scientific realm. Yeah, math and sciences have always been a really strong point for me, uh, strong subjects. But I don't know if that's because I'm dyslexic or because I'm male or because I just like them. It's hard to kind of attribute that to one thing or another. But yeah, I've always had uh, a tendency toward science and math. Was there a history of dyslexia or any other learning disabilities in your family? I don't know. I don't think that my parents have ever been tested, and my two brothers are not dyslexic. So I could be the first. I'm plowing the way. And how did that feel to be within your family, the only one that had this issue, and have to work twice as hard as anybody else to kind of make it through? Honestly, I never thought about it. Our family is competitive, but not academically. Academics weren't really something that our family ever talked about, so it wasn't a huge deal growing up. Now that I'm older, I'm a little bit embarrassed because my little brother will power through six or seven books in a vacation, and I'll be struggling with one book, and you know he'll ask me if he can read it, and I'll have to say no because I'm not done with it yet. So it's a little bit embarrassing, but only until recently. So. And you talked about being competitive, but not academically. So were you more athletically competitive? Yeah, or? definitely athletics. Um, we had a couple of neighborhood kids, and we played football and baseball. We played at school and just in almost every other way. We fought a lot, bickered and fist fighting with my brothers. But yeah, so competitive in other ways. So it sounds like you not only learned through visual, because you talked about YouTube, um, but you also have kind of a kinesthetic sense, kind of a body learning that you that you do. I excel at like labs and things like that where I get to use my hands and see what happens and I can actually see the processes. Some For some reason it stays with me better than if I just read it in a book. So how are you using this information to help teach students um, who may have a learning disability or may not have a learning disability but may just learn differently. How do you use what you've gone through to help your own students? Um, I try to be really open about it. I'll make errors when I'm typing out a test or, or grading a paper where I'll make a spelling error or I'll switch letters in a word or something like that. And you know, I just say, I'm, I'm badly dyslexic, so when you see a spelling error, let me know and I'll fix it. And I think that being open about kind of my issues is important and, and maybe helps them come out of their shells and, and admit it. Everything is embarrassing when you're a kid, everything. And it's hard to kind of admit that you have problems, but if this adult that you respect admits it, hopefully it'll be easier for them. Have you had kids um, approach you and say, I am having some issues myself and you know I need some guidance with this? Or is it, have you been able to help anybody that specifically had problems that you noticed? I don't think it's ever come out that way. I don't think they've ever come up and said, I've had problems reading, what should I do? It's more, I'm having trouble in this subject, can you help me? Or I'm having some, some problems in this topic, can you help me? And in that, I think perhaps I'm a, I can be helpful because I've been so open. But no one has ever come up to me and said, I'm dyslexic too, we should hang out. So it doesn't quite work out that way. Well, it is an interesting 
age group, if you're dealing with 11th and 12th grade, or if you're dealing with high schoolers, I suspect you're right. That's not something that generally um, people want to use as a badge of honor, I guess, at that age. Why become a teacher? What, what was, was there a pivotal moment where you said, okay, I really want to do this thing that's going to help other kids, maybe in a way that I would have liked to be? I, yeah, I think so. In high school, I really wanted to be a, a teacher because I thought that my teachers weren't doing a great job of it. Um, and now looking back, they were. They were incredible people. But at the time, I thought I could do way better than they're doing. I, you know, I, like most teenagers, I thought I could do everything. Um, then I graduated and I actually worked as a scientist for seven years before switching. Um, in college, I kind of started learning and I really appreciated my teachers and I was inspired to go into lab science. Uh, and I tried it out and I actually really liked it. Um, then the business I was working for went under during the uh, recession and I decided it was time for a change. I wanted to try it out and it was great and I love it. So there wasn't necessarily a single moment, but it was kind of a culmination of my life and, and what I wanted to do. And I've always liked teaching. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.therooms.portland.com. Com. If you were working as a scientist, how does that contrast with the work that you do now as a teacher? Um, my problems as a scientist were very linear. I had some issue that I had to solve or some problem that needed working, and I could do that. And I could go to work every day and try to solve that same problem every day. And that was nice. Um, it was nice to know what I had to do to accomplish something. Where as a teacher, my problems are varied. Every day it's a new issue, and it, every day it's some student not getting something, or there's a fight, or there's something. Every day is different, and I really like that too. Having brothers and fighting with your brothers, did that give you some insight into the um, uh, social aspects of children? Strangely, I wish that I'd had sisters, because uh, I don't get young girls. I just don't get it. You know, the way that they behave, the way that they act, I just cannot, it doesn't, it doesn't compute. You know, they'll come and speak with me about something and I'll say, do this. And they'll be like, well, I've already done that. Duh. I'm like, uh, uh, okay, then why ask? But yeah, so brothers are good, but I do wish that I'd had a sister growing up. 
Well, that's actually, I'm laughing over here because I, you are not the first person who has said that, that they have a hard time understanding <laughs> girls. And it is really interesting because we're talking about your brain and how your brain processes words, words differently and how your experience um, has helped your brain process things a certain way. But you're right, having never experienced the way that girls' brains process things, that is a whole new realm for you to struggle with. Yeah. And I think... You know, that's kind of how I feel about dyslexia. Trying to describe it, I just, I don't, I can't. I can't, I, I can't relate to what you see on a page. I can't, I don't think that way. And that's okay. You know, I, I think that I've been pretty successful as, you know, an educator, as an, as, an, as an academic and as a scientist. But it's difficult when people ask kind of, what is it like? It's difficult to describe. Well, of course, if you've never had it any other way, it's, right. it's kind of like asking somebody who's blind, what is it like not to see? <laughs> right, exactly. But it does speak to something that I think is really interesting, which is that you may have dyslexia, and it's something that we can say, at least at this point, we know more about it than we once did. At one point, we just would call people who had dyslexia, we would just say that they weren't smart, or right. you know, they, you know, there was just something wrong with them. Right. It, you, um, I think... We have the advantage of just saying, okay, there's some something in your brain that isn't working quite the same. But I think all of us process information in different ways. Certainly. So, I mean, what you're doing as a teacher is, whether it's boys or girls, whether people are visual or auditory or tactile or kinesthetic, whether any of these learning styles, we're all trying to figure out how to communicate with the people around us and how to process information. I agree. I agree completely. Um, I think that I don't get a sheet that says this student is dyslexic. I might get a sheet that says this student needs more time for reading assignments or this student needs more time for assignments in general, but that doesn't tell me what their particular learning disability is. And I like that. Um, if I knew, I might be tempted to change something for a specific student. And that's, I think that's a, that's a dangerous road to go down. That's a slippery slope because I have 150 students. If I tried to change every lesson for every student, I couldn't. I'd be overwhelmed and I'd be ineffectual as a teacher. So instead, I think maybe just review and, and revisit things in different ways. And I think that's probably the way that I go about trying to deal with students that are, are dyslexic. And it is also important because as much as we would like to be um, all accepting of various learning styles, in the end, we're a very test-driven society. I mean, it's all about the standardized um, tests. So simultaneously, we want to respect where how people learn and make it possible for them to learn, and it's, that's extremely important. But we also need to help them adapt to you know the larger system, which is, is at this point, is set up in a very specific and linear, is the word you used, linear way. Yeah. And standardized tests, we, Thornton just got graded on our SAT scores, and I feel okay about it because science isn't on the SAT at all. So, you know, judging what I'm doing is difficult in standardized tests. But again, it doesn't, they don't shorten the length of those reading sections for people that are dyslexic. So when you know they're calling out two minutes and I'm flipping through the last five stories, there's a lot of stress, and I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know a better way, though. That's, I guess, the big issue is I don't know a better way. So. And I think that you're right. That that is the thing is that we it's 
not ideal. It's, it's what we have, and hopefully in the future we'll work towards something. And I know that there are some, in some standardized testing situations, we do allow for more time, and there is more um, way to make things up. But, but it's an interesting place that we're in now. We finally come to the realization that not everybody's the same, amazingly enough. Right. And we're just trying to kind of work through it, kind of like scientists. You know? Yeah, You've got step some by issues, step. step by step. Exactly. Well, Garrett, I appreciate your coming in and talking to us about your experience. I appreciate your being a teacher. Thank you. Teachers are very important, especially science teachers. I had a number of very good science teachers thank going you. through, and I think what you're doing is quite valuable. So thank you for being a teacher as Mr. T at Thornton Academy. We've been speaking with Garrett Temkowitz, who is a science teacher at Thornton Academy. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 154, Lessons on Learning. Our guests have included Margie Burns-Knight, Anne Sibley O'Brien, and Garrett Temkowitz. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as D-O-C-T-O-R-Lisa, and see my daily running photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Lessons on Learning show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belial. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our online producer is Kelly Clinton. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is available for download free on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. (laughs) 